This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, August 20th, 2021. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show back in Washington, D.C., back home. Happy to be home. Thank you for listening every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, on demand on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. you got bonus Benson on the weekends. Here's who we have for you on the show coming up. Charlie Hurt will join me later this hour. Reaction to what we just heard moments ago from President Biden. We will have our analysis and some sound here coming up momentarily. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican of Texas, who's a veteran. We'll ask him about Afghanistan, but also the border crisis. There's another raging crisis in the Biden era, self-inflicted, just like Afghanistan, and the terrible execution of this withdrawal. The border crisis is very personal to Congressman Gonzalez, and he will bring us an update on that because we don't want to lose sight of it. And in our final hour, we will welcome to the show... A friend of mine who may have perhaps landed on your radar earlier in the week. He is the Republican who just flipped a Biden plus 25 state Senate district in Connecticut into the Republican column in a special election on Tuesday night. How did he do it? And what does that say for Republicans moving forward? into 2022. We will ask him, that's Ryan Fazio, later in the show. Fox News alert as we get going here. Let's bring you stats. Coronavirus cases, 37.4 million cases across the country. That's all in over the entire course of the pandemic, although it's a huge undercount. We are finally starting to see what may have been a peak and now declining numbers in some of the states that have been hit hard by the current seasonal and Delta variant, like in Louisiana and in Florida and elsewhere. Meanwhile, some worrying numbers going up in places like Oregon and Washington. I mean, there is a seasonal component to this for sure. The death toll is now 626,099 Americans who have died from COVID in the last year and a half. The closing bell is 51 minutes away up in Wall Street. The Dow currently up 192 points at 35,086. We'll watch that over the next hour-ish. Another Fox News alert. President Biden addressing the nation for the second time on Afghanistan earlier this afternoon. He was about 50 minutes late. He was scheduled to come out at 1 p.m. Eastern. He did take some questions this time, five of them. I will give you my overall assessment and then play you some of the audio. 
I watched with obvious interest and urgency. I think a lot of Americans are very concerned about what's happening to our fellow citizens who are there, to our allies, to whom we owe a debt of gratitude and really have a duty to help them. What is happening? Because the situation has been an absolute mess with the Taliban taking over the country, spiraling into total chaos. The Biden administration has told us repeatedly they plan for every contingency, like we got this, but also admitting, well, we couldn't have seen any of this coming, even though that seems to be not true. There was, in fact, a State Department cable that was reported in the Wall Street Journal late yesterday in which people on the ground at the embassy in Kabul were begging the State Department, please listen to us, this could go very badly, very fast, urging the State Department and the Biden administration to begin evacuations much earlier than they did, at the latest at the beginning of August. And now here we are with this fiasco unfolding. The president's speech was, I'll use the word shaky. He at times was having trouble delivering it. His message I would not categorize as reassuring. There were a few things that he said that I liked. He made a more forceful promise that we will get Americans out of the country. We will get our allies out of the country. I'm not sure how much credibility he has. But to hear a president say we're going to do it and they're going to do whatever it takes is at least hopeful. He focused a lot on the bravery of our soldiers. Absolutely true. He tried to play up some of the successes, if you can even call them that, of the evacuation numbers so far. It was kind of a stay-the-course speech, which is wildly out of step and out of touch with what we're seeing on our TV screens and our social media feeds. It just it felt... The phrase that they love using these days, you know, you have to meet the moment. Well, Monday's speech absolutely did not meet the moment, and neither did this one. I'm hoping that some of the optimism and positive spin might turn out to be not completely baseless. I'm hoping, I'm praying. But as I say, I was not reassured. Then came the questions, and they were all, I would say, pretty good, tough questions. And his answers were not great, to be kind. Whenever he's in a corner, or the administration is in a corner, because he hasn't taken that many questions, he finally took some at this press conference. And then, by the way, as soon as the fifth question was over, he walked out and the White House called a lid. They're done for the day. He was going to fly back to Delaware to go to his house in Delaware, but there was so much criticism like, wait, he flew out back to vacation in Camp David after the previous speech. He's going to fly out again? What is he doing? And I guess the optics, I, I, don't, I honestly have no idea what's going on over there. I don't know what's happening with him. They finally pulled the plug on flying him to Delaware immediately after giving the speech. They figured out, oh, maybe that doesn't look good. But they have called a lid. But he was making assertions in the Q&A in response to tough questions that 
To me, and again, I am not a top expert on these matters, but to me, based on my eyes and ears and reading, and people that we've had on this program over the course of the week seemed deeply divorced from what's actually happening on the ground. And there were a few things that were just obviously false. He asserted that there's no al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. There are experts. I tweeted a long thread by Thomas Jocelyn, who follows this closely. He has all of his receipts. He said that is not true. Sort of disconcerting when a president says something about a terrorist organization that is not supported by the facts. That's just a minor example. A more significant uh, more significant example would be cut 18. Someone asked him about American credibility being damaged by this just catastrophe over which Joe Biden is presiding. And we played you yesterday some of the sound from London. We read you some of the headlines coming out of Europe. That was sort of the basis of the question about American prestige and credibility. And Joe Biden planted his head in the sand today in the Q&A and pretended like none of that is happening. It was extraordinary. Listen to Cut 18. I have seen no question of our credibility from our allies around the world. I've spoken with our NATO allies. We've spoken with NATO allies, the, the Secretary of State. Our national security advisors have been in contact with his counterparts throughout the world and our allies, as has the general, or, or excuse me, I keep calling him a general, but my Secretary of Defense. The fact of the matter is, I have not seen that. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite I've got. The exact yeah, opposite this is, thing is we're acting. This is just the- delusional. I read you the Daily Telegraph headline yesterday. Parliament, this is UK, Parliament holds the president in contempt. That was yesterday, their headline. After an entire session of members of Parliament in the House of Commons in a truly extraordinary, if not unprecedented session, one after another, blasting the Biden administration and the United States of America as an untrustworthy ally on this huge issue. They are seething in London. It wasn't private whispers. It wasn't some hissing to reporters over the phone. It was out in the open on television in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords in Westminster. Joe Biden says, I haven't seen any questioning of our credibility. Here's a headline. Quote, greatest debacle that NATO has ever seen. Biden stuns allies with Afghanistan mistakes. That's apparently attributed to a German official. Here's another headline. The debacle in Afghanistan, a grave blow to America's standing. Another headline. U.S. allies slam Afghanistan pullout as a debacle. There was the Politico story about European leaders being stunned and feeling betrayed. And Joe Biden says, no, no, we've had no indication of any problems at all. In fact, just the opposite, he said. Just the opposite. It's better than ever. This is delusion. This is delusion. Then you had this. I mean, this, I think, is probably the biggest single newsworthy thing from the press conference. He was asked about Americans trying to get to the airport. We know that a lot of Afghans can't. The Taliban is 
hunting people down, beating people, murdering people. We'll get to some of that later. Because over and over again, Biden was sort of arguing that we need to trust the Taliban and whatever deal they've cut with the Taliban. And the Taliban now over and over again are proving that they cannot be trusted and are in fact doing all the horrific things that we worried that they would because that's who they are. They're a terrorist organization. Like Biden said, oh yeah, we're going to go, we're going to get our people, we're going to get them out, we're going to get the allies out. He would not commit to having our troops go and get them, like we're seeing from the Brits and from the French and other governments. We are not doing that. Our troops are still ordered not to do that. And his answer to that was, well, look, it could get complicated and messy out there, and we've got this deal with the Taliban, and Americans can get to the airport and get out. And that premise was challenged by a reporter, because that's not what seems to be happening at all on the ground. Here's what he said. Cut 27. This was the president. We have no indication that they haven't been able to get in Kabul through the airport. We've made an agreement with the with the Taliban thus far. They've allowed them to go through. It's in their interest for them to go through. So we know of no circumstance where American citizens are carrying an American passport or trying to get through to the airport. But we will do whatever needs to be done to see to it they get to the airport. We have no indication that there's any problem with any of this. Just like there was no indication at all that there's any problem with our credibility and our alliances. So as soon as the speech and the session ended and the questions, various news networks then went to their correspondents who have been covering this very closely. Our own Jennifer Griffin, who is a very serious, sober-minded person, reacted this way in Cut 23. I'm having a hard time digesting what we heard because I couldn't fact check it fast enough in real time because there were so many misrepresentations of what is happening on the ground. To hear the president talk about still having an over the horizon capability to see what is happening with the remnants of Al Qaeda, ISIS K, the Khorasan group, and even the Taliban. That would have required partners on the ground. And what we've seen in recent days is that those partners on the on the ground have been abandoned. They're in hiding. They're fearing for their lives. They've fled the country. I couldn't fact check it fast enough, says Jennifer. Clarissa Ward at CNN in Kabul talking about getting to the airport. Cut 25. We had difficulty getting into the airport. Working out how to get to the airport is like a Rubik's Cube. You sit and go through a whole different of factors and contingency plans and trying to get help from, from different uh, different places. Um, and, you know, I can't get into the details of how we did get in, but um, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. It's not a simple process at all. And as she added, it was dangerous. And then this exchange on ABC News, just listen, it speaks for itself. Cut 26. The president said he has no intelligence that Americans have been unable to get there. Uh, The question, obviously, does that square with reporting on the ground? I mean, just totally not. Uh, I mean, the reaction was was pretty much one of, of, I mean, it was breathtaking. No indication Americans can't get to the airport. I mean, last night on World News, 
we had American citizens who had exactly that experience. They tried to get to the airport. They had waived their American passports. The president talked about all they had to do was present their passports and they'd be allowed through. They were beaten by the Taliban uh, with uh, the rubber fan belt from a vehicle. Uh, multiple examples of Americans and Afghans, SIV applicants, who have now tried repeatedly. There's one woman we're tracking. She's back at the airport tonight. This is her third night in the row. The gates haven't opened. The Taliban haven't let her through. Uh, it, it just seems the reality and the rhetoric are miles apart. Uh, I'm not quite sure what, what advice the president's receiving, but the truth on the ground is that, that these people who are in fear of their lives can't get through. Breathtaking, he said. Miles apart, the rhetoric versus the reality. So the president stood up and said, we're going to do what it takes to get our Americans home and our allies out of the country. He wouldn't commit to doing things like going to rescue them. And then he proceeded to make assertions that are obviously, glaringly wrong and false. And if that does not instill more concern in you, I don't know what to say. Then he took his final question, called a lid for the day. We'll take a break. We're just getting started here. It's the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Right before the break, I played you the ABC News clip where the reporter said Biden's assertions about Americans being able to get out of the country in Afghanistan, get to the airport, was just divorced, unrecognizable from the actual reality on the ground. And he talked about harrowing examples of Americans trying to get out who can't, who have been beaten by the Taliban. There was another reporter who confirmed this. A source says, situation in Afghanistan rapidly deteriorating. We've had Americans getting beaten throughout the night. One of them, an American woman, was beaten twice, even though she was carrying a U.S. passport. This in addition to the Taliban going door-to-door, executing anyone that has worked with the United States. I mean, would you have gotten that sense from anything we heard from the president? No. There are Americans getting beaten by the Taliban. They can't get out. The president says, we have no indication that that's happening. The Secretary of Defense just admitted that it's happening and called it unacceptable. What does that word mean, unacceptable? We're accepting... 
Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Dang it. From the Biden administration. We're accepting it. Words have meaning, and they cannot change reality. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. GuyBensonShow.com. As we're back on this Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show, we're joined by Charlie Hurt of the Washington Times. And he's a Fox News contributor. Charlie, good to talk to you again. Hey, guys. Well, I assume you watched the president uh, and his speech and his Q&A. Briefly, before we get into some specifics, what were your takeaways? What, What did you come away feeling? Well, honestly, Guy, whatever uh, apprehensions I had about um, President Biden and his grasp on the situation going into the press conference, uh, none of them were cleared up. And I am more concerned now than I was uh, even before. And I was very concerned before. Yeah, I have to agree particularly because I'm starting and I don't want to be too snarky and, and, you know, feel like I'm being too nasty here, but I'm starting to wonder, did he say anything that was true and accurate and credible? Like so much of it, especially in the Q&A where he was not reading off of a teleprompter, he was just making assertions. And instantly you had members of his own administration contradicting them, reporters on the ground contradicting them. Yeah. You know, he said that he's, they're getting no indications that our allies uh, are upset or see a decrease or diminishing of U.S. credibility. We know that is just wildly untrue. He said that there are no indications or reports or intelligence that Americans are having trouble uh, getting to the airport or being stopped. Reporters are saying, no, Americans are absolutely having huge trouble getting to the airport, and some of them, in fact, have been confronted and beaten by members of the Taliban. And in fact, let me just read to you. This is just breaking now in the last few minutes. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was on a briefing call with House lawmakers and was asked about or raised the issue of Americans being beaten by the Taliban in Kabul as they try to get to the airport. Austin called it, quote, unacceptable. And a reporter at Politico says this statement alone from Austin contradicts a lot of what Biden just said at the White House about Americans not having a hard time getting to the airport, which, you know, many other correspondents have immediately rebutted. We played some of that sound earlier in the hour. Here's another example that I just want to read to you, Charlie, and get your reaction. So the spokesman at the Pentagon, John Kirby, was taking questions, and he had quite an exchange with our own Jennifer Griffin, which we might get to a little bit later on, but he was asked about the reports of Americans being beaten by the Taliban in Afghanistan, in Kabul, which is what Biden says is not happening. Kirby said those reports are, quote, 
deeply troubling and that it's, quote, absolutely unacceptable. And they've told the Taliban that it's absolutely unacceptable. But then he added, by and large, the access is happening safely, which is sort of a new version of mostly peaceful. Right. The mostly peaceful protests when when there's just buildings on fire, uh, you know, in the background. This is a mostly peaceful effort of Americans to get to the airport on their own with no help from American troops who are ordered who have been ordered not to help them. The president says we have no indication that there's any problem or any violence or Americans have any issue here. Everyone is saying that is not true. And now the administration, I guess, is admitting that there are beatings of Americans happening. And they're saying, well, it's still overall mostly peaceful, but it's very troubling and it's unacceptable. What does that word mean, unacceptable, Charlie? Because we're accepting it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Precisely. Yeah. And and I don't know what's worse. um, The idea, the notion that uh, President Biden's secretary of state and secretary of defense uh, are hearing about these things and learning about these things and know about these things, and they're not telling the president about these things, or they're telling him and he either doesn't remember or he's or he's lying about it and saying that they're not happening. Um, and 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 going back to the former, if in fact they're not conveying this information to him, why aren't they conveying this information to him? It raises all kinds of of questions, troubling questions, and none of them. Uh, have whatever the answer, the most benign answers that you might be able to come up with are not going to be good answers. It's still a very terrifying. I mean, the, the situation on the ground is beyond terrifying, but it's but but it's also a very terrifying situation to think that you have a president who is this, you know, out of it or uh, incoherently, you know, can't can't grasp what's going on or is lying about it, whatever the situation, it's terrible. And, um, and I don't see it getting better in any way. He then, after taking, finally taking some questions, he took five questions. I think they were pretty good questions. His answers were bad. Yeah. They were filled with information that you would have to call misinformation at this point. Instantly debunked, instantly, in real time, by you know network news correspondents who are not typically unfriendly to Democrats, people who understand what's happening on the ground were watching and listening. I saw tweets coming in from Brits in London saying, how the hell can he claim that there's no questioning of American credibility around the world? It just happened in the House of Commons for hours the other day in, in, you know, in public view. He just comes out, he says this stuff, And this is the thing, I want to believe him, Charlie, when he says, we are committed, we are going to get Americans home, we're going to get them home safely, we're going to get our allies out of that country. I want to believe that that's true, but they have effed up every single part of this withdrawal so far so badly, and their predictions and their assurances at every turn have been proven catastrophically wrong, and when they're not even authorizing our personnel to go help our people get to the airport and our people are left to fend for themselves getting beaten in the streets by the Taliban and the president denies that that's even happening while other governments are seeing fit to have their special forces go get their personnel. I mean, if, if my voice seems like my uh, the, the timber or tenor of my voice seems to be getting agitated, if I'm raising my voice, if I'm sounding, you know, perhaps a bit 
angry here. It's because I am. I mean, this is this is a very bad, dangerous situation, and it is frightening that the commander-in-chief seems to be either unaware of that reality or unwilling to, on any serious level, grapple with it and communicate it to the American people. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, to me, the most disturbing part of all of this is that, you know, I, I'm a big believer that no matter how bad any situation is, there are always lessons to learn. You learn a lesson from every situation. And no matter how bad Afghanistan has been, you learn lessons from it. And the lessons that you must learn from it are you don't, we, we, you don't get into armed conflicts where you don't have a defined, finite goal. And then when you complete the task, you stop. And we're in a situation right now. And, and by the way, the president is sending troops back into harm's way having learned nothing over the past 20 years about defining your goal and knowing what it is you're trying to accomplish. He doesn't even know how many Americans are stranded there. He yes. doesn't know how many al-Qaeda are on the ground that, 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 that we have to worry about. Well, he, he said there were none. He said there were none. Anything. I mean, this is, so yep. this is a big frustration also that I addressed earlier in the week because the Pentagon – I believe it was yesterday, they were asked point blank, how many Americans are left in Afghanistan? How many Americans are in Afghanistan right now? I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, the exact number, right? 13,422, right? But, like, ballpark. How many Americans are left in Afghanistan? And they said we don't know. It would be nice to know how many transport planes to send over there to get the Americans out, for example. So if we could get a ballpark within a, I don't know, plus or minus 600, that would be kind of helpful. And they said, we don't know. Biden again today admitted they don't know how many Americans are there. And just to to pause on that point for a second. They announced in April, Charlie, that we were officially, definitely, finally getting out. They had all this time, months, to prepare to do something other than this. Right. Other than whatever the hell this is, they had months to plan and prepare. I don't know what they were doing because for all their talk about contingency planning, obviously they did not get that done. I mean, I don't know what else you can say about it. And at this stage, for them to not know what the American footprint remaining in this country is, I mean, this is something that they should have had locked down. They should have absolutely known this as a pressing matter of national interest and their answer a week into this catastrophe is we don't know and i just want to add one other thing because in addition to the wall street journal piece yesterday the the secret state department cable that is now leaked so the blame game is now raging within the administration during this active crisis but that showed that there were acute abject warnings about the very real possibility that this thing could fall apart extremely quickly. And they were practically begging the administration to start early on evacuations, August 1st at the latest. Obviously, that did not happen. And then there is an Associated Press, uh, excuse me, an Associated Press piece that I've now seen circulating on social media from just two months ago in June. And I'm going to read to uh, you, Charlie, part of this piece. As U.S. and NATO forces prepare to depart Afghanistan by September 11th, many are recalling that desperate, 
hasty exodus, talking about Vietnam, as they urged the Biden administration to evacuate thousands of Afghans who worked as interpreters or otherwise helped the U.S. military operations over the last two decades. Despite, this is the key line, despite unusual bipartisan support in Congress, the administration hasn't agreed to such a move, declining to publicly support something that could undermine security in the country as it unwinds a war that started after the 9-11 attacks. That was two months ago in June. The Associated Press, now sort of like flashing back, they were being begged not just by people on the ground in Afghanistan, but on Capitol Hill from both parties. Please start doing this. And the administration decided, no, we're not going to do it. We're going to give up Bagram Air Base for some reason. We're going to do nothing in the way of evacuations. We don't know how many people are on the ground. I guess they didn't decide to do like a little estimate or headcount of Americans there. I, I am struggling, Charlie, to even comprehend what this planning is that they say they did so much of. Yeah, and of course, the, you know, the only uh, real important thing about the State Department cable is the fact that it proves that the administration is lying or the White House is specifically lying when they say that they had no warning whatsoever. Um, of course, what, what was contained in the cable itself is hardly even worth putting it into a cable. It's so obvious. None yep. of this is complicated. You knew as soon as you said you, there's going to be a date certain for withdrawing, you knew that it was going to come to this, and, and you, you knew you had to set about planning an evacuation to get Americans and to get whatever uh, uh, people, uh, allies that had been helping us, that, that, we, that are, is in our interest to get out, to get them out. You, we all knew you had to. You didn't have to be a member. You didn't have to be a spook in the CIA to know that this was going to happen. It was going to come to this, and uh, somehow or another, and, and, and it leaves you with no other um, uh, presumption except that that, uh, that that they knew it. They didn't care. They 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 wanted this to. Ha- I, I I don't know. I have no idea. I but think no I I just way. wonder. I because the the question of why is what I keep coming back to, and I think yeah, a lot of it exactly. is they feel like they knew how this was going to go. They had some agreement with the Taliban. They didn't want to jeopardize any of that. And they, I mean, he Biden today kept citing the Taliban. Like they would ask him, the reporters would ask him, "Well, what do you do? Why won't you go extend the perimeter? Why won't you go like other countries and and have U.S. forces go?" collect and protect their citizens and bring them to the airport. And he basically was saying, well, look, the Taliban has assured us that Americans are going to be fine and we don't want to we don't want to mess with them. We're basically at their mercy. And if we rock the boat at all away from our agreement, even with Americans, I guess, getting beaten by the Taliban, well, we, we just can't really do anything. And they are so wedded to the roadmap or whatever game plan they had dreamed up in their head that I think some of that explains what we're seeing, but where it becomes so self-defeating, their own rhetoric, Charlie, one of their biggest talking points has been we plan for every contingency. And one of the <laughs> contingencies would be if things went sideways and the plan that they thought would play out didn't play out, they said they had that sort of locked down as well. They had planned for every contingency, and, and this is what we have. This is what we're seeing and they're calling it both planned for and unforeseeable. 
even though it was clearly <laughs> not planned for and was foreseeable. It's the opposite of what they're saying. Yeah. No, last and, and, last and word to you, Charlie. You, no, your 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 uh, hypothesis there, I would say, is a generous one, but it is, uh, and, and maybe you're right. It's it's certainly the most sensible one I've ever heard explanation for how all of this happened. But if if that is the case, we're in even deeper trouble than I thought because if they thought you could go in and make a deal with the Taliban, we're we're cooked over there. Yeah, and by the way, it wasn't just them. The Trump administration tried to cut a deal and did cut a deal with the Taliban, although the Taliban, of course, violated because that's what the Taliban does. And of course, they are what liars did, and, and what, killers. what did President Trump do when the Taliban violated? He bombed the crap out of them. And, yeah, and, we had, and I don't... We, we had conditions. And now, I, it's amazing, yeah. Axios is reporting... <laughs> Axios is reporting that the Biden administration, the military, is now contemplating airstrikes, not against the Taliban, not against the enemy, airstrikes against our own equipment that has been left and abandoned in Afghanistan. Airplanes, Humvees, helicopters, uh, you know, munitions. We're now potentially planning to blow... Are we going to bomb them in Pakistan? Are we going to bomb them in Iran? I don't know. know, And I think we're going to try to bomb as many of those planes or whatever that are still in Afghanistan before they end up in Iran or Pakistan or China or Russia. So if this is... I guarantee you, they're already in Pakistan and they're already in Iran. And unless the the military is willing to go and bomb them there, you know, uh, what a a disaster. It is. I mean, if this is the contingency planning... (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what to say. I, I find myself sort of at a loss. Charlie, I also find myself up on a break. We've got to take it. Charlie Hurt, Washington yep. Times, Fox News contributor. Thanks, Thank you, Charlie. We'll be right back after this. Energetic, informed, fast-paced. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, here's another thought that I had during the commercial break. President Biden, in his speech today and responding to questions, said that if the Taliban, because he's relying and leaning on them very heavily, apparently that's our strategy now, is relying on the Taliban. He said if they interfere at all with any Americans trying to get out of the country, the U.S. response will be, quote, quick and strong. That was the vow from the president to the Taliban. We now have multiple reports of American citizens with their passports trying to get to the airport and getting beaten in the streets by the Taliban. So now what? There's the red line, Mr. President, that you drew today. It's been violated already. Are you going to do anything? Another hour coming up on The Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. 
It's a new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every single day. Fox News alert as we begin this middle hour. The Dow closes up 225 points on this Friday, ending the week at 35,120. The Pentagon has just briefed on the situation in Afghanistan. The State Department is currently briefing reporters. And before we get to our next guest, I want to read to you a breaking story from Bloomberg News, which can probably help explain why the Brits are so furious with the Biden administration in the United States right now, and many of our European allies are too, even though President Biden today said there's no indication of that. He's heard nothing about any diminished American credibility in the world. Just the opposite, he said, which is just laughable. I, I, I hate to say it, but he is on a different planet on that question. There were reports yesterday in the British press that Boris Johnson... The prime minister over in the U.K., our closest ally, was trying to get the president on the phone for 36 hours and couldn't. And I wonder if Biden might have been dodging his call because of this. Again, from Bloomberg headline, Biden assured allies in June U.S. would ensure Kabul's stability. Here's the story. President Joe Biden told key allies in June that he would maintain enough of a security presence in Afghanistan to ensure they could continue to operate in the capital following the main U.S. withdrawal, a vow made before the Taliban's rapid final push across the country, according to a British diplomatic memo seen by Bloomberg. So this is now not only are memos leaking out of the United States to the press, now they're leaking out of London to the press. Because the president keeps saying things that aren't true, and people want to prove that because they're angry. So this is a British memo detailing how there were assurances made by our president to the G7 leaders, including the Brits, that we were going to maintain a security presence to secure Kabul even after our main withdrawal from the country. Back to the story. Biden promised U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson and other leaders at the Group of Seven Summit in England that, quote, critical U.S. enablers would remain in place to keep Kabul safe following the drawdown of NATO forces, the note said. British officials determined the U.S. would provide enough personnel to ensure the U.K. embassy in Kabul could continue operating. Of course, that is not the case. So according to this report, based on leaked British memos, our president told our allies, we are going to help secure Kabul even after our military is pulled out. Our allies were counting on that. Then the Taliban took over the country. We split. We got out and pieced out of Bagram. And Kabul has fallen. And the promise that was made, the assurances that were made, not just... To Af- you know, the, 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 the people in Afghanistan, people counting on us who trust us, but also to our allies. No wonder they are livid. And the president tells us they're not livid. They're happy. Never happier. That's what he said today. Joining me now is Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican from Texas. Congressman, sorry that I kept you waiting. I just had to bring that story to our audience, and I'd love to get your reaction to it. Yeah. Hey, Guy, thanks for having me on. And I appreciate you covering that story, too. Look, I'm calling you from Del Rio, Texas. 
That's uh, right on the southern border between Texas and Mexico. And look, people are angry here as well. I mean, this administration is, is untrust, untrustworthy. You know, everything they say does not match what they do. And you always, you know, in a magic trick, you always got to watch the, the offhand. And, and that, the, the problem is, is uh, you know, things are, are getting worse by the minute. Uh, you know, I just got, I, I think something like that, where you have our allies, our closest allies, kind of begin to realize, hey, we're going to have to go it alone. It's shocking. It should be shocking to all of us. Uh, what I also would say is when there's a void of leadership, and there is absolutely a void of leadership from the, from the White House on down, we as, as, uh, as members of Congress have to fill that void. And we have to actively do it in a manner that shows honor that America is going to stand with our allies. America is going to make sure every American uh, gets, gets uh, out of Afghanistan safely. You served in Afghanistan in your capacity in the U.S. Navy. As you watch what's happening now, it just sort of blows my mind to see that the, the line from the White House seems to be, we planned for every contingency, but this wasn't really foreseeable. And it just sort of struck me last hour, exactly the opposite appears to be true, that this was foreseeable. In fact, it was foreseen. We're now seeing it literally in memos popping up. This was foreseeable. And clearly, they did not plan for these contingencies because the results speak for themselves. What, what's concerning to me, Congressman, is that the president in his speech today, and especially in the Q&A, made multiple statements and assertions that were immediately debunked by people on the ground and contradicted by real evidence. And I don't know if the president is misleading us on purpose or if he does not have a real grasp on what's happening. You know, it is absolutely maddening to see how this administration has handled things from domestic policy to foreign policy. You know, I spent five years in Afghanistan. You know, I've gone as, as many of my brothers and sisters have gone through a, a wild ride of emotions from anger to frustration to sadness back to anger. I mean, it's absolutely, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't even have a words to when I'm watching these videos. Another thing I'll say, you know, I just got off a call with, um, with Secretary Blinken, Secretary Austin, uh, General Milley, uh, and, and members. And, and one of the things that's just so just jaw dropping is the fact where they go, you know, we we can't leave uh, we can't leave Kandahar Airfield, like what? Like well, I mean, not Kandahar, uh, Kabul. We can't leave the Kabul airport. And we're like, what? In, instead of the message being every American, no matter where you are, we're going to get you home safe. To that firm, strong, clear message, they're wavering. I, I want to remind the audience: Afghanistan is roughly the size of Texas. And the only place people can get extracted is out of Kabul. So imagine you at have one to airport way to, at one airport and, and airports uh, and, and Kabul is, is is over four million people. It's the size of Los Angeles. So imagine, you know, you live in a rural part of the state and they're going, yeah, we can get you out. Right. But you got to make it to Austin, Texas, which is nine hours away. And oh, by the way, there's going to be Taliban checkpoints all along the way. I mean, it's just and we can't and we can't guarantee your safety. They've said that we can't guarantee your safety. Other countries are guaranteeing their citizens' safety by sending their special forces out and and other personnel to go get and secure those people and bring them to the airport. We aren't doing it because of some deal that we have with the Taliban. 
And the Taliban, and I saw reports from the call that you were just on, the Taliban is beating Americans, flogging Americans, beating Americans, assaulting Americans with U.S. passports as they try to get to the airport. President Biden said today, and I made this point in the last hour, he promised today, he warned the Taliban, if you interfere with any Americans trying to get to the airport, our response will be fast and strong, quick and strong was the direct quote. And now there are multiple reports that it's already happening. And based on what I saw on the phone call that you were just a part of with the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense called it unacceptable that Americans are being beaten by the Taliban. And the point I keep coming back to, Congressman, is they can, they can throw that word around, yes. unacceptable, but until they do yeah. something, they are literally accepting it. And the president drew the red line today. The red line has been violated, and I don't know what comes next. And the problem is, I don't think he does either. Right. No, you're exactly right. Actions speak louder than words. And, and this administration thinks that the Taliban are just all, all of a sudden are going to be welcoming partners. I mean, this is, a, this is a brutal regime that has killed Americans, that has fought America for two decades, and all of a sudden they're just going to allow us to do things. I mean, it's, I've never seen American foreign policy at a weaker point than now. And, and, and I go back to it, like, look, as, as a, you know, a 20-year combat veteran and now a member of Congress, it is my duty to fill this void of leadership uh, that the White House has left. My How are you doing that? Ringing. How are you doing that? Yes. My, my phone is ringing off the hook on people trying to get out. And what we're doing is we're using our personal contacts. We're using every means possible to basically go, you know, we're on our own, right? The, the folks in Afghanistan are on our own. And as an office, I'm on my own. And we just got to pull resources together to get folks out. I've got dozens of people kind of uh, waiting, like working on their case to kind of get out. It should not be that way. No, because I've heard that's the way things are. Can you confirm, because I've seen a few of your colleagues, uh, Congressman Waltz, Congressman Crenshaw, they've been tweeting about exactly the types of efforts that you just described, where congressional offices, Senate offices are trying to sort of cobble together some sort of U.S. response and help people get out, whether it's our citizens or, you know, interpreters and others. And the the description from those congressmen from the State Department or of the State Department is that it's just been utterly rudderless and hopeless at the State Department. Is that your experience? It is my experience. And look, part of it is when, when the State Department abandoned the embassy in, in Afghanistan, they destroyed all of these visas on, the, on their exit route. So now you've got people that have been waiting. They've processed their stuff, but the, the State Department has destroyed it because we abandoned that post. Meanwhile, I've got folks calling me and telling me, Tony, you don't understand. I have days to live. Like, I need to get out now. Like, and the folks that have even made that dangerous trek and they're in Kabul, there is no way to get to the airport. Like, even if you do make it there, there is no way to get to the airport. I'll say it again. It is so, it's such a dire situation. Every minute, every day that goes by, people are going to die. And to think the Taliban are just all of a sudden, you know, not going to be be, uh, retribution to all these people is unheard of. Congressman, I do want to ask you, because we're now speaking together, you mentioned at the top that you're at the southern border, right near the southern border between U.S. and Mexico. That's your district in Texas. I don't want to allow us to 
say goodbye at the end of the interview without at least getting an update from you on the border crisis, because that has not gone away. We're all watching no. Afghanistan for very good reason. We're watching in horror. But the other self-inflicted crisis from the Biden administration, major one, at least on uh, this side of the world, is at the southern yep. border. Uh, the stats from last month were a complete disaster. It's getting worse. What are you seeing and hearing at the southern border on that front? Yes. So my district, uh, Texas 23, is 42% of the southern border. I'm literally I'm on the border now. I'm literally on the border every single week. And, and I can tell you it is as bad as it's ever been right now is as bad as it's ever been. And I'll give you an example. You know, I have visited all parts of this, this uh, crisis. At the very beginning of it, the height of it, uh, around 40% of Border Patrol agents, they weren't in the field. They were in these processing centers because of the sheer number of migrants that had come over. Well, guess what? Now that percentage, it's 80%. 80 per, imagine that. 80% of the workforce, 80% of Border Patrol agents are in these processing centers. What does that mean? That means nobody is protecting our southern border, right? This, the, the, the open border rhetoric that the, the, the Biden administration ran on has turned into open border policy. And, and we can't lose sight of that because here's the deal. I mean, it's August, the, the hottest time of the year. Traditionally, numbers go down. If this continues, you're going to see astronomical numbers in October and November. Is there anything that the Biden administration is doing? I know they sent the DHS secretary down there for, you know, a few photo ops and uh, some remarks and that sort of thing. Are they changing course at all in terms of their actual policy? You know what? They have a, a slightly started to be more um, uh, understanding of things. There's a long way to go, but I'll give you a very specific example. So back in April... Senator Cornyn from Texas, myself, uh, Senator Sinema from Arizona, Democrat, and uh, Congressman Cuellar, a Democrat from Laredo. We put together a piece of legislation. It's called the Bipartisan Border Solutions Act. It covers many things, but one thing in particular that it had, it called to add 300 ICE agents to the equation, right? This was in April. Well, about, about a week ago, uh, well, about a week ago, they finally added 300 ICE agents, right? So the bill doesn't pass, but they take parts of it. And they implement it. Is that going to solve it? No. But at least shows that they're trying to do. They know. They know they're in over their skis. And this thing is, is not going away. Um, so it's so important that we continue to keep the political pressure. This, is, this, is, this was caused by the executive branch. And only the executive branch can fill this. There are no laws that can, that can correct this. It's about implementing the laws that are already on the books. And that's the executive branch's job, in particular, Joe Biden needs to do his job. Uh, Joe Biden seems overwhelmed. Uh, that's my assessment of it right now. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican from Texas 23, joining us from the southern border, talking about the border crisis and drawing on his experience as a veteran, having served five years in Afghanistan to address the crisis on foreign policy. Congressman, uh, probably not the most, I don't know, optimistic conversation you've ever had, but... No. That's what we've got right now. That's the reality of it, and we appreciate you making time for us today. Always, always. Thanks, Guy. Appreciate you. Congressman Gonzalez. On the Guy Benson Show, we'll be right back after this short break. Guy Benson will be right back. 
New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. What interest do we have in Afghanistan at this point with al-Qaeda gone? We went to Afghanistan for the express purpose of getting rid of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, as well as, as well as getting Osama bin Laden. And we did. Back on the Guy Benson Show, that was President Biden today, just a short while ago, saying al-Qaeda is gone from Afghanistan. We wanted to get rid of them. That was the goal. And we did. Minutes later, here was Jennifer Griffin at the Pentagon, our colleague at Fox News, asking about al-Qaeda in Afghanistan to the spokesman for the Defense Department. Listen to this exchange. Cut 30. The president just said that there is no al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan. That does not seem to be correct. What? What uh, we don't think is that we what we believe is that there isn't a uh, a presence that is significant enough to 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 merit a threat to our homeland as there was back on 9-11 20 years ago. She was asking how many Al Qaeda fighters, operatives, terrorists are there in Afghanistan? And he wouldn't give her an answer. Oh, I don't have an I don't have an exact number. Biden said they're gone, they're out. There is no al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. The Pentagon says, well, let's not talk numbers. What we can say is there's not as many as there were before 9-11. Does that make you feel better? Does that answer make you feel better? That spin, that is real spin from the Pentagon and John Kirby. And it's worse than spin from the President of the United States, who doesn't know how many Americans are in Afghanistan, thinks there's no al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, thinks there's no Americans in Syria, not true. It has not been a confidence-inspiring week at all from this president. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of the story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Halfway through the show on this very busy Friday, it is The Guy Benson Show back in Washington, D.C., And we are all over the issue in Afghanistan and the president's speech, the questions that he took. He called a lid about an hour ago-ish. So done for the day. At this point, it was two hours ago. But the issue is not done for the day. We brought you the update about why the Brits and the Europeans are apparently so angry. Biden, according to memos, now leaked to Bloomberg, Biden promised them at the G7 that he would, and the United States, would guarantee security in Kabul, even after the withdrawal. And that promise was obviously calamitously broken. Now, one of the questions that has been on my mind, and probably on your mind, and we've been talking about it with some of our guests, including with members of Congress, Senator Sass yesterday, 
if the French, there are videos and photos of the French with their very capable special forces teams going out and getting their people and bringing them to safety. If they're doing that, there are reports that the Brits are doing the same thing, the Germans, a few other countries, taking care of their citizens in Afghanistan amid the chaos and the danger of a terrorist organization taking over. Why can't we do the same thing? We have the most powerful military in the world. But our leaders tell us, oh, we don't have the capacity to do it. Well, part of the problem is they don't know how many Americans are there, something probably they should have gotten a handle on before the withdrawal. Just a thought. Part of it's because there are so many Americans there that maybe in order to go and do all these rescue missions and secure the safety and ensure the safety of our citizens, it would actually require a very significant troop presence beyond just the little airport now. And Biden, that would seem like a reversal or an embarrassment to him, like he was going to have to go back on his broader vision for getting out. Right, That could be an ego bruise, since he's been so unequivocal, then having to go send a bunch of troops back in all over the country to go get our people out. I mean, that would look horrible. Although, does this look any better? But I think most importantly, the most significant explanatory factor that I can discern, at least, behind this, is that there's a deal with the Taliban, and Biden is so desperate that the U.S. keep to that deal, that he's willing to suffer ongoing humiliations because he feels like maybe he has no other choice. Because if things start to get hot between the United States and our troops going to get our people to protect them and the Taliban, then it could be once again a shooting war with violent skirmishes, casualties, that sort of thing, Biden doesn't want that to happen, and so he is just sort of trusting the Taliban. We've made a deal with them, and let's just hope it sort of goes okay. Although it's already going not well, obviously, even though Biden won't admit to that. Americans can't get to the airport. Some of them have been beaten in the streets by the Taliban, and Joe Biden comes on national television and says, oh, they're, they're getting through, Americans are getting through, that's going fine immediately discredited by news reporters who are on the ground, correspondents, people texting from Afghanistan. What is he talking about? It's just not true. When he was asked, why not expand the perimeter beyond the airport a little bit? Why not send special forces to go get Americans as opposed to ordering them not to? His answer was not good, but it goes to my theory here that this is all about trying to placate the Taliban because he doesn't feel like he has any choice. Like the the uh, Pentagon yesterday wouldn't even call the Taliban the enemy. They were asked that question straight up. Brett Baer asked John Kirby, are they the enemy? And Kirby deflected because they don't want to piss off the Taliban because they are relying on the Taliban in this makeshift disastrous policy that they are now stuck with and in a corner cowering as the United States of America because of their own sheer, pathetic, historic incompetence. 
So today at the press conference, he gets the question about expanding the perimeter and letting U.S. troops go and get and protect Americans. Here's part of his answer, cut 19, the president. The reason why we have not gone out and started and set up a perimeter way outside the airport in Kabul is that it's likely to draw an awful lot of uh, unintended consequences in terms of people who, in fact, uh, are not part of the Taliban. So maybe you should have thought of some of the unintended consequences during all of that contingency planning you keep telling us about. Maybe when you promised the Brits and the Europeans that we were going to maintain security in Kabul even after the withdrawal just a few months ago when you made that promise, maybe you should have kept the promise. Because then maybe this whole thing would be going a lot better as opposed to the complete cluster that it is. He went on and cut 20. We've been in constant contact with the Taliban leadership on the ground in, in Kabul as well as the Taliban leadership at Daho. And we've been coordinating what we're doing. That's why we were able, for example, how we got all of our embassy personnel out, how we got everyone out of the embassy safely. That was the distance. That's how we helped get the French out and out of their embassy. So the question remains, there will be judgments made on the ground by the military commanders at the moment and that I cannot second-guess each of those judgments to be made. He referred to the Taliban leadership in Daho. I think he meant Doha. He's talking about, oh, well, we, we helped with the French get their people out. The French sent their people in. They went and actively got their personnel and brought them to safety. We're not doing that. Why? His answer is, well, we're in constant contact with the Taliban. Like, that's supposed to make us feel better. His answer is, but basically, we, we go to the Taliban. Hey, are we? Uh, can we keep doing this? You're not going to kill our people? Please, please? Because the Taliban completely is overrun the whole country, including Kabul. Which Joe Biden and Anthony Blinken told us a few weeks ago was highly unlikely to happen, let alone this fast. Who are these people, the Taliban, that we are now uh, trusting and relying on? At townhall.com today, I did a roundup. This was before Biden's speech. I'm just going to read to you because I don't have time. And in fact, it would be too depressing. I don't want you, you know, turning your radio off because it's so depressing. But I'm just going to give you the headlines of recent developments involving the Taliban. New York Post. Horrifying video reportedly shows Afghan police chief executed by Taliban. There's a video of him. Police chief in Afghanistan, blindfolded, his hands tied in front of him, kneeling on the ground, and they shoot him dead. Remember, they said there was an amnesty. No reprisals, no revenge. That's not what we're going to do. They promised us. Amnesty International, assessing that the Taliban is now responsible for a brutal massacre of Hazara men in the Ghazni province of Afghanistan. Reuters, quote, Taliban are intensifying the hunt down of all individuals and collaborators with the former regime. And if unsuccessful, target and arrest the families 
and punish them according to their own interpretation of Sharia law. So they're hunting down collaborators. They've intensified that effort. And when they can't find the collaborators, they hunt down their families. CNN International. Taliban fighters searching for a German journalist in Afghanistan shot dead a member of the journalist's family and seriously wounded another. This according to German media. They're hunting down journalists and murdering their families. BBC News. The Taliban are going door-to-door hunting down Afghans who work for the Americans, NATO, or the collapsed government, according to an intelligence document prepared for the UN. It warns of the possibility of, quote, mass executions. And then there's just the lighter stuff, like women being turned into, you can't even call them second-class citizens. A journalist reports sources now saying the Taliban are reverting to strict Sharia law, threatening on WhatsApp groups to, quote, chop into pieces and throw away any female students in schools who show up wearing lipstick or nail polish. Basically saying you will be fully covered wearing your burqa or we're going to murder you. Chop you in a little bit and throw you off a cliff. That's what the women and girls of Afghanistan have to look forward to. Also a report from the Daily Beast that the Taliban... Brutally beat a boy for wearing shorts. Now, we knew that this type of stuff was going to happen, right? Unfortunately, the misogyny and the oppression was baked into the cake when it came to the decision to withdraw. And you can say, that sucks. It's horrible for them. It's not in the U.S. national interest. That's the debate that we've already had. And obviously the president and a lot of Americans agreed came down on the side of withdrawal. President Trump did as well. But what did not have to happen was all the other stuff I mentioned. Where the United States and our allies saw the Taliban march in and take over the whole country in a matter of days which the president again said wouldn't happen. Then it happened. He had made assurances and promises to our allies to at least maintain security in Kabul. That didn't happen. And now the people that we would need most urgently to get out, including U.S. citizens and so-called collaborators, are getting rounded up in door-to-door searches. Because the Biden administration just... I have absolutely no idea what they were doing on their evacuation timetable here. And we now have multiple examples of memos and statements that they were being urged desperately to get on it weeks and months ago. And they didn't. They refused. That's one of the parts of this that I really can't understand. I honestly can't. I can try to think up explanations. They're bad. right? They're, they don't vindicate them, but I'm just trying to think of any possible explanation, even if it's somewhat delusional in their thinking. The fact that they 
allowed these cries to fall on deaf ears and didn't start getting our people and the people that we owe out of there far sooner, in fact, rejecting a bipartisan chorus from Congress, asking them to do so, I am completely, completely flummoxed and baffled. Incompetent doesn't really cover it. It doesn't. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, now there are reports that we might conduct airstrikes not against the Taliban, not against al-Qaeda, which we know is still in Afghanistan, even though the president said they're not. The right? president said there's no al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, which is not true. He said we don't know how many Americans are in Afghanistan, something we should know but don't. He said that our alliances aren't strained or under pressure or our credibility hasn't taken a hit with our allies because of this debacle when we know just it's conspicuous. We know that's not true. The evidence is deafening and overwhelming in the other direction, but he said it anyway there today at the White House. And he said that Americans can get to the airport, the one tiny place where all of them have to evacuate, thousands of them, saying, yeah, they can get here. We're in constant contact with the, uh, with the Taliban. It's good. And everyone on the ground is saying that is absolutely not true. Citing the violence, the beatings in the streets of American citizens with their passports at the hands of the Taliban. And may I remind you of this. This was a few days ago. The president reiterated the red line, the threat today. But earlier in the week, in a warning to the Taliban, President Biden, cut 32, said this. We have made it clear to the Taliban, if they attack our personnel or disrupt our operation, the U.S. presence will be swift and the response will be swift and forceful. We will defend our people with devastating force if necessary. Swift and forceful. Today, he said, if any Americans are interfered with by the Taliban trying to get to the airport, we will respond quickly and strongly. And after he said that on ABC News, we heard this, cut 33. They were beaten by the Taliban uh, with uh, the rubber fan belt from a vehicle. Uh, multiple examples of Americans and Afghans, SIV applicants, who have now tried repeatedly. There's one woman we're tracking. She's back at the airport tonight. This is her third night in the row. The gates haven't opened. The Taliban haven't let her through. Uh, it, it just seems the reality and the rhetoric are miles apart. The president said, if you mess with our people, the response will be swift and devastating. They're messing with our people. They're beating our citizens. Now what? That's a question for you, Mr. President. Now what? Your spokespeople and your defense secretary say, oh, well, that's very disturbing. Unacceptable. Okay. Now what? You did this. This is your plan. This is your big foreign policy move, Joe. Now what? And we won't get an answer today because they called a lid two and a half hours ago.
It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. On this Friday, it's the Guy Benson Show. The last two hours have been a lot. And as I mentioned with Charlie Hurt earlier, you might be able to hear it in my voice. Just the rising tension. Trying not to get frantic. But there's a lot happening in my head. And I'm trying to bring you the best information I can without being too uncharitable. But, I mean, my goodness, the results are speaking for themselves. And that performance from the president was awful. I call him like I see him, and it was awful. Let's shift away for a bit from Afghanistan, shall we, in the happy hour? The Guy Benson Show, happy hour, we'll try when we come back. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour on a Friday. Back in Washington, D.C. after a few days up in New York. Glad to be home. Glad to have you here. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, the podcast free seven days a week, including bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com is our website for all of those resources. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is fantastic, especially in hot weather. You should try it out. Many of you have. And it's expanding across the country. TheLongDrink.com. Refreshing, delicious. I'm a big fan. TheLongDrink.com. You can see where it's sold near you or order online. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. Well, in the state of Connecticut, a deep blue state, there was a significant state Senate race this week. It was a special election. And Republicans were hoping to flip a blue seat into the red column. This is obviously a tough state for Republicans generally. And this is the type of district in Connecticut, affluent, suburban, that has drifted away from the Republican Party for a while, but particularly in recent years. So I was watching this special election play out with some interest just because I'm interested in national politics. And occasionally you want to look at trends and tea leaves. But I was watching this race with particular interest because the Republican candidate seeking to flip the district happens to be a friend of mine who was a few years behind me at Northwestern. He's from Connecticut. He ran for the seat and narrowly lost in 2020. Joe Biden won the district very heavily. And on Tuesday night, 
to my delight, and this got actually a fair amount of national attention, Ryan Fazio won the special election in the 36th Senate District in Connecticut. And he will now be known as Senator Fazio, which is sort of fun for me to say. Ryan, it's great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Guy, long-time listener, first-time caller, happy to be on. I've first of all, say that. <laughs> congratulations and go Cats are the first two things that I have to say to you. Uh, for yeah. the audience, Ryan, who probably I would wager most of them, almost all of them, don't know anything about your district, don't know anything about you. Some of them who are you know, Republican or conservative-leaning are probably happy to hear, okay, the Republicans picked up a seat in a blue state. That's interesting. Tell us about your district and yeah. how you went about competing as hard as you did in 2020, narrowly losing even though President Trump lost your district by a large margin, and then how did you seal the deal and pull off the victory this week? So the Senate district is Greenwich, Stamford, and New Canaan, Connecticut, so uh, an economically important section of Connecticut, the most southwestern Senate district of about 100,000 people. Um, the reason it's interesting and important is because it, as you, you mentioned in your intro, it is the type of district that has moved heavily against Republicans nationally. Dense suburban, above average income, Northeastern in particular. Um, so as you uh, alluded, Joe Biden won the district uh, by 25 points. I was also on the ballot in 2020 against an incumbent. I lost by uh, two and a half to three points. Um, we are able to win this week uh, in, the, in the special election by 2.6 points. So we were able to... Uh, in a, in a heads-up election, uh, shift the electorate about five points in our direction. Um, we are able to do that by working very hard with a lot of great campaign workers and volunteers um, and, uh, and delivering a narrative to the voters that was very direct, very focused about improving government, improving people's lives, turning Connecticut around, a state where the policy has moved too extreme in one direction, and that's hurt middle-class people, it's killed economic opportunity, it's made our neighborhoods less safe, and it's divided people. So we worked very hard, we were very focused, and we made significant inroads that enabled us to win. And I, I suppose the reason that people are watching it nationally is because, A, it's the type of district that has moved, moved against Republicans, uh, and, um, and B, it's the first, um, it's the first successful flip uh, of, of any state or national district uh, our federal district uh, anywhere in the country in 2021. Yeah, this year. And so that's why I was watching it, not just because you were involved, although, you know, I had sort of a personal rooting interest here. Was it sort of fun or surprising for you to see the amount of reaction that your win got? I mean, the RNC chairwoman was tweeting about it. I saw, I actually realized that you had won not because I saw your social media feed or because I had remembered to go and refresh the page that I had an open tab. I just sort of in the wild started to see tweets about your victory. I'm like, hey, I know that guy. Were you at all taken off guard a little bit? Were you sort of blown away by the interest in what you were able to pull off with your team? It was certainly cool and gratifying. I understand why people were watching it. Um, for the reasons that we just talked about, um, it, it is kind of it, it's validation of the the quote from Tip O'Neill that's basically become passe that all politics is local because in recent years it feels like all politics all politics has become national. 
But I think our race shows that if you work very hard, if you focus on the issues, um, especially the issues that are within your jurisdiction as a state or a local or a national um, official, that you can persuade people that our way is the right way. That common sense and pragmatism and uh, center right Republican policies uh, can persuade people in the middle and even on the center left um, that there is a better way uh, in comparison to the national Democratic brand and certainly the Democratic brand in Connecticut, which has always been ideological um, centralization, uh, anti-personal freedom, uh, uh, high taxes, high regulatory burden. That's made it very difficult on the middle class, small businesses, uh, police and others. And that's certainly the case where we are. And uh, I think it's certainly the case elsewhere around the country. I am curious about the way that your opponent attacked you. Because I think if there are people listening right now who are thinking about running for office or who are running for office or working for someone running for office, we have a lot of people on Capitol Hill who listen to this show. They know in advance in some of the districts exactly like yours what the attacks are going to look like and sound like next year. And here in Virginia, we're seeing them already. The attack ads against the Republican, Glenn Youngkin running for governor, they are trying to tie him as frequently as they can to Donald Trump because a lot of the electorate in, let's say, Northern Virginia or your part of Connecticut, they're not fans of Donald Trump. To what extent did the Democrats in your race try to nationalize the race, attach you to the Republican Party or certain characters within the Republican Party, and what did you do successfully, obviously, to combat what they were attempting? I think first and foremost... You have to accept that these things are going to happen because the Democratic Party in places like Connecticut and elsewhere are grasping at straws because they don't have good record to run on and they don't have good ideas to run on. Um, second, you always have to I think, stay focused on why you're running, um, which is simply to make people's lives better and protect good things about your community and good things about our country. Um, and you can't be distracted from that fact and ultimate goal um, as ugly as a campaign might get. You know, I think now now doing this a couple of times, one of the most reassuring things is it really does feel like voters, especially middle of the road voters, want someone who they think is going to do a good job for them um, past kind of all the noise. And they're willing to see past, you know, kind of the more uh, histrionic voices and arguments and, and try to look at the issues, whom they agree with, whom they think will do a better job. And so the, the way the, the attacks on me were kind of a copy and paste from the attacks on me last time, uh, that, I'm, uh, that I'm socially right wing or that I'm, uh, uh, you know, hand in hand with uh, President Trump or, or something like that. With, you know, I don't talk about really national politics at all. I tried. I. I view the task before me kind of very solemnly and um, very seriously in that I have a responsibility as someone who's running for a state office to be talking about state issues which are subject to change, which can affect the well-being, the safety, um, the personal freedom of people in my community. And if I veer off in a different direction, that it's irresponsible. Um, and I think it's irresponsible of the Democratic Party in Connecticut, that they do try to distract people um, and cast aspersions. 
Um, the thing that makes me feel better—that uh, also makes me feel better—is that I won the race, in spite of that, in spite of them spending more money attacking me than than actually trying to um, uh, than actually trying to popularize their own candidate. And um, I think it goes to show that voters are do take seriously their responsibility to electing people to do a good job. Um, and um, and it gives me a little bit of faith. Yeah, and you know, I'll say this as someone who paid. Just, you know, scant but occasional attention to your race and just an observer from the outside. And we're not like close friends. We've met and hung out a few times. We would check in every so often, you know, I'd send a note or whatever. But watching the way that you campaigned and the way that you messaged, you seemed very sort of, you know, hardworking and committed. You were constantly out there meeting people, talking to people, knocking doors and sort of showing up, which I think is in many cases, is you know, a huge part of the battle, and sometimes it seems like the most obvious thing. It's right in front of you, but you can easily get sucked into social media battles and other stuff, and, and you stuck to it. You stuck to that plan. You were also, I would say, just my observation, very earnest about wanting the job and wanting to earn people's trust to go do the job well, and you were extremely disciplined in your messaging about what the issues were that you wanted to talk about. You figured out what people in the district cared about, and you were going to sort of refuse to allow externalities and noise and distractions and shiny objects to deter you from the plan. And the plan worked. So my last question for you is this. It's sort of more of a Connecticut question. I know the vast majority of our audience is not based in Connecticut, but it's a deep, deep blue state. I know a lot of people are interested in California, the recall coming up. They might be wondering how this might apply out there and some of the lessons. What is like, you know, job one or two in your mind that you can now do to make a difference to try to turn the ship a little bit in that state? Because it is headed very uh, inexorably, it feels like, in the wrong direction. This could at least maybe turn things a bit. What's on the agenda at the top of the agenda for you once you're sworn in and join the Connecticut State Senate? I don't think it's much different than what you just described with the campaigning. It, it, take your job seriously, take your responsibilities seriously, and try to make people's lives better by making government policy better. Uh, protect people's freedoms, protect our great traditions, uh, and try to make improvements in order to create prosperity and safety and, and a high degree, a level of social services, good education. Um, so my, my focus will be on, um, on things like schools uh, in my district. There's a charter school in my district that's probably one of the best schools in the entire state, but it's treated very unfairly by, um, by the state government. Uh, improving health care regulations to increase access and reduce costs, like certificate of need laws, occupation, uh, licensing for medical professionals, creating more reciprocity with, with people from other states. Um, uh, common sense things, common sense regulations that even moderate Democrats can get behind. Um, I think the greater degree of fault in the Democratic Party in our state lies with the, the leadership of the state legislature rather than the governor. Um, I think he can be agreeable on some of these types of ideas. So while I'm in the minority, I'm obviously going to be fighting against the worst impulses and the worst policies of the Democrats, but also going to try to find uh, common ground with, uh, on public policy reforms where we can try to make people's lives better. And I think people watch you, you know, not just in specific instances, but over a long period. And hopefully they'll see that me and my colleagues uh, in the state Senate and the state House are trying to earnestly make improvements to government 
to improve people's lives, create hope uh, in a state where there's been economic and political malaise for many years and show that Republicans can deliver a better way. Ryan, I'm delighted and thrilled that you won. Uh, The reason that I wanted to bring you on this national show and give you this time slot is there are districts all across the country, especially in blue states, but also in some red states, that have similarities to yours. They're not exactly the same. It's not copy and paste, right? But there are at least dynamics at play that would translate. And if the Republican Party wants to be a majority governing party, we have to approach some of these races differently than we do in, you know, base play elections. And I just want to showcase your example as a success and also just appeal to conservatives more broadly. We need to have that big tent where we give people the space and the freedom without all these litmus tests, you know, ideological and personality wise and others to go out and get the job done in their district in a way that applies to the contours of their district. And Ryan Fazio has done that to a T in the state of Connecticut. He has flipped that seat from a Biden plus 25 district to now a Republican represented state Senate district in Connecticut. His victory was on Tuesday night. Ryan Fazio, again, congrats, sir. And I'll be watching you with great interest as you begin your service to the state. Thank you very much for your time, Guy, and for your uh, listeners' time, and uh, have a great weekend. Appreciate it. You too. Go Cats. Ryan Fazio on The Guy Benson Show, back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have each and every one of you here on this Friday. Happy Friday to you. It has been a week. I had an experience while I was in New York City, actually twice now, and I had forgotten that this was going to become a thing. And then I was confronted with it and reminded, oh, yes, I have to prove that I'm vaccinated to get into restaurants. This is a new policy. And so I fortunately had a photograph of my vaccine card, which I could show on my phone, but they also wanted a photo ID. And so I furnished both of those things. They said, welcome, come on in. Now, of course, if you're not vaccinated, then you can't go in. And that applies to a lot of people in New York City, especially in the black community. And... I'm just wondering if there's going to be a backlash at any point from that community or from progressives who would look at this and say this is racially disparate. I don't know. But I found it absolutely fascinating that a New York City Democratic official was tweeting about this policy, very supportive, saying you have to prove that you've got the vaccine and show your ID. And he explained why, quote, the ID requirement is to help reduce fraud. And I feel like he's so close to coming to a realization about photo identification and fraud. Right? They've called that suppression and racist for decades on one front, but here they are lining up and cheering a double show-me-your-papers at New York City restaurants, and the purpose of the ID 
they say, is so they can be sure, the maitre d', that you are who you say you are. And if that's their standard for getting into a restaurant and having some pasta, maybe it's a completely reasonable standard to have when you go and do other things, like vote. It's The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com It is Friday on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. I'm Guy Benson. Earlier in the program, Charlie Hurt, our colleague here at Fox News, a contributor, also opinion editor at The Washington Times, he joined us to react to the president's remarks and the situation in Afghanistan and the news of the day. Here's part of my conversation with Charlie Hurt. And they're saying, well, it's still overall mostly peaceful, but it's very troubling and it's unacceptable. What does that word mean, unacceptable, Charlie? Because we're accepting it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Precisely. Yeah. And, and I don't know what's worse. Um, the idea, the notion that uh, President Biden's secretary of state and secretary of defense uh, are hearing about these things and learning about these things and know about these things. And they're not telling the president about these things or they're telling him and he either doesn't remember or he's or he's lying about it and saying that they're not happening. Um, and, and, and going back to the former, if in fact they're not conveying this information to him, why aren't they conveying this information to him? It raises all kinds of, of questions, troubling questions, and none of them uh, have whatever the answer. The most benign answers that you might be able to come up with are not going to be good answers. It's still a very terrifying I mean, the, the situation on the ground is beyond terrifying, but it's, but, but it's also a very terrifying situation to think that you have a president who is this, you know, out of it or uh, incoherently, you know, can't, can't grasp what's going on or is lying about it. Whatever the situation, it's terrible, and, um, and I don't see it getting better in any way. He then, after taking, finally taking some questions, he took five questions. I think they were pretty good questions. His answers were bad. Yeah. They were filled with information that you would have to call misinformation at this point. Instantly debunked. Instantly, in real time, by you know, network news correspondents who are not typically unfriendly to Democrats. People who understand what's happening on the ground were watching and listening. I saw tweets coming in from Brits in London saying, how the hell can he claim that there's no questioning of American credibility around the world? It just happened in the House of Commons for hours the other day in, in, you know, in public view. He just comes out, he says this stuff. And this is the thing, I want to believe him, Charlie, when he says we are committed, we are going to get Americans home, we're going to get them home safely. We're going to get our allies out of that country. I want to believe that that's true, but they have effed up every single part of this withdrawal so far so badly, and their predictions and their assurances at every turn have been proven catastrophically wrong. I mean, if, if my voice seems like my uh, the, the timber or tenor of my voice seems to be getting agitated, if I'm raising my voice, if I'm sounding you know, perhaps a bit angry here it's because i am my full interview with fox news contributor charlie hurt available online on our free podcast which is available 24 7 on demand and free every day and yes bonus benson on the weekends guybensonshow.com foxnewspodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts when we come back the home stretch 
a debate between yours truly and producer Christine. It came up on our call earlier. We do not see eye to eye on the issue of leftovers, some lighter subject matter to close out our week on The Guy Benson Show. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. I was on the train coming back from New York this morning, and I was talking with producer Christine planning the show today. And I just happened to mention offhandedly that I had brought my lunch with me on the train. And it was leftovers from a previous meal that we had talked about here on the show. So Tuesday night I was in New York. I was tired. I didn't want to do much of anything. And so I ordered Chinese food to the hotel and watch some TV. That was my big Tuesday night. And I ordered a few different dishes. It was just me by myself in the room. So of course I didn't eat all the food. We have a little mini fridge in the room. And I was actually rather proud of myself because I had ordered, as it turns out, enough food to parcel out over the duration of my stay in New York where I had it for lunch every day. So dinner Tuesday, lunch Wednesday, lunch Thursday, and then I had one little container left that I put the remaining food into and a little plastic bag, bought a water, and brought it on the train with me and ate it for lunch just before she and I had spoken. And she bristled at this. She said she thought that was disgusting, not that it was three days old or that I was eating cold Chinese food with a plastic fork on a train. That was not what bothered her. What bothered her in general was the fact that I ate leftovers at all. Because, Christine, you don't eat leftovers ever? You hate leftovers? I I don't know why this is a thing that my husband gets very upset about with me, amongst other things. I do not eat leftovers. Even if it was something I had last night, I am not eating it the next day. I, for some reason, skeeve the thought of leftovers. You name one instance where leftovers are ever better than the original meal. Oh, I mean, I would say in a number of different dishes. No, you can't name one dish. There's no way. I would say Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving leftovers are so satisfying. Do you not eat Thanksgiving leftovers? No, I I, I don't. What is wrong? Honestly, what is wrong with you? I ask this. I, I ask this genuinely. What is wrong with you? Well, I mean, listen. I told you before. I talked to a therapist about a lot of things. I'm not going to sit here and tell you everything. Uh, but, Do you talk to the therapist about your aversion to leftovers? Because how much food does that end up wasting in your house? A lot, and and that's why you know when we go out to dinner or something, and uh, Bobby sees that I don't eat maybe maybe half a meal, he gets annoyed because he's like, "Well, I'm going to wind up eating that." Because it's or no one is or nobody is. Maybe he shouldn't see. This is the thing. Maybe you when you go out to dinner because of your ridiculous position on leftovers, you should only get like an appetizer and a cocktail. Don't order a bunch of food that you're then not going to eat and throw away because you are. You can be I'm trying to say this. You can be a little frugal, right? You want to make sure you've got 
all of your bills paid for and you save up for Christmas special gifts oh, yeah. and all this mm-hmm. stuff. Yes. To me, this is a no-brainer way to save a not insignificant amount of money by just eating the food that you have already purchased and prepared. I I get what you're saying, but yes, and I I am I I'm a little you know tight with the wallet, not with food. For some reason, I will spend on food. The other day when I was in the building, I was telling Max I spent nineteen dollars on a salad, and I didn't even finish <laughs> the whole salad, and I just threw oh. it out because I knew I would never take that home and eat that. Or I would never put it in the fridge at work and then the next day eat it. It would just never happen. It would sit there for days until I, I would have to come in and throw it out. one meal for four days this week. I have a visceral reaction to that comment. So, so you I would buy – this is what I don't understand. You will go to the grocery store. You will get a bunch mm-hmm. of ingredients. Those ingredients mm-hmm. will sit in your refrigerator, not all put together yet, but they're just sitting there in, in your fridge. Then they come out of the fridge, they are prepared and cooked, put onto plates, you consume some of the food at that sitting, there's leftover food, it goes back into the fridge, the exact same stuff, the exact same food, the exact same ingredients, at least this time prepared and ready for human consumption, and then you want nothing to do with it again. Well, how are you going to prepare it? You're going to – so say I had chicken and rice and broccoli, and I have it all on a plate from my dinner before, and I had leftovers. Where – how am I going to make that dinner taste as good as the night before? Put it in a microwave? Yeah, like you microwave. Either. You just nuke it. No, you nuke it. No, no, or, like, do you no, not no. eat leftover pizza, Christine? No, no. That box would sit – Bobby would. I. It's gross. Like, if we have pizza on a Friday, Bobby would eat that pizza on Wednesday, and it is oh, gross yeah. to me. I, so this is the only source of conflict with Adam on this. I am willing to eat leftovers longer from the original meal than he is. Like, I'll do, I would say, up to a week in some cases. Like, five or six days I feel comfortable. He's more of a one to two, three is pushing it type of guy. But you're saying none of it. You'll have all that food, the chicken... The broccoli, the nourishment, sitting it's on your plate, and you will just gonna... dump it directly yeah. into the garbage. Oh, and Bobby will eat it. I mean, he he really doesn't have a choice because he's not going to let that go to waste. Uh, macaroni, Megan will eat a little leftovers. Megan's not a big leftover person either, and he blames me for that. Oh yeah, he, he, that's your fault. Well, like I, if it if, I don't tell if it were just a normal leftover. if it were a normal sort of activity in your house, right? If it was a standard operating procedure that you would have leftovers sometimes for a meal, she wouldn't think twice about it. I mean, my mom or my dad, like, they would often cook enough for the purpose of having leftovers. Oh, like it was, uh, Judge Joyce did the same. And the battles we would have, like, my parents were really strict, and I just would not eat. And they would say to me, like, if you don't eat this, you don't get anything. And I'd be like, fine. I just won't eat then. I don't understand that. I'm a stubborn little cookie. There are people who meal plan also who will cook a huge amount of food on like a Sunday and then parcel it out for lunches throughout the week. It is a completely normal thing to do. 
And it doesn't oh, even planning. sound like you we find it. That. It doesn't we sound like you that. find it like too physically revolting. It sounds more like this is sort of some weird, I don't know, psychological thing or like a snobbiness. I'm trying to figure out why you won't eat. But what would be what would I, be I the guess... limits of this? Like, what would be the? Oh, okay. Like, I ha- I have one thing that I may eat the next day. Okay. Uh, uh, Benihana, or like hibachi. Uh, Bobby, the next what? day, take that hib- I might eat the hibachi the next day, because he'll take it and put it in like a wok and like zhuzh it up to make it really nice again. So I may do that. So like Maybe, a fried rice that, type like, thing? Yeah, you know, like the hibachi meal you would get at Benihana, where they throw, you know, when they throw the food at you. and that's, Yeah, that's but to me, that is, that is the strangest answer. For you to give of the one thing that you would eat. I feel like hibachi is the thing that you want to eat right there because it's a show that they put in front of you. And, I mean, I guess if you sort of have a kind of a stir-fry type thing, it can taste good the next day. It's why Chinese food is so good, I think, the next day. Right? There are some foods that are not. French fries, bad the next day. Um, oh, terrible. Like uh, a hamburger. Well, I guess yeah. you eat your whole burger. Chicken, yeah, but often no burger. terrible. It, it gets a little bit more dried out, so you, that's why you need Ooh. sauces. You can dip stuff in sauces. But yeah, but french fries gross the next day. Sushi you don't want to be eating the next day. There are a few things that you just eat in that moment, and then you're done. But almost everything else, like you can reheat pizza really well. It doesn't even have to be in the microwave. You can put it on the stove. Like You can get one of those skillets and reheat it that way, and it's delicious. No, pizza should just be get the box. You know, your get your. You want me to reheat my pineapple pizza? No, I don't want you to have Eat pineapple it. pizza. No, pineapple pizza is gross at all times. I'm saying good pizza. And, and yeah, I, I, I just I don't know what else to say. I, I think maybe it's more of a man, we're deep diving here a microwave thing because I really don't like anything in the that comes out of a microwave that's been cooked except popcorn. That's like the only thing I think I could put in a microwave, and like I don't use mine. Um, Even to just heat certain things up. Well, if I'm heating it up, then that's really kind of considered a leftover. No, not necessarily. Like if you have to melt some butter or something. I mean, microwave has a lot of different uses. Yeah, I can. Okay, maybe melting butter, popcorn, and melting butter. But I'm just saying, I would never put like chicken that I made the night before and broccoli and rice into a microwave, heat it up for a minute, and then eat it. I just wouldn't do it. I'd, I'd rather have a bowl of cereal. Here's a question. You've got a pint of ice cream. You eat some of the pint of ice cream. Do you put it back in the freezer, or do you throw it away if there's ice cream left? It's funny that you say that. Um, I do. If you look in my freezer right now, there are so many cups of when we've gone out for ice cream of my leftovers that I've never touched again. Bobby, usually at the end of the, like a month, he'll go in and he goes up. Oh, there was her mint chocolate chip. She never ate. There was this. And she, he just throws it all in the garbage. So if you had, he goes, I'm not going to eat it. Yeah. But if that's, yeah, I don't know why you would bring back leftovers when you don't eat leftovers. That's another question that I have here, but, it's not like a small scoop or something from when you go out. If you get like one of those larger tubs of ice cream. Oh, we don't do that. Mm-mm. Nope. Because you There's would have. A tub of ice cream. Because you wouldn't, wouldn't want back. to. Yeah, I just wouldn't. Mm-mm. 
Mm-mm. I would never just like dip into it and then like the next day dip into it. I don't know. I just wouldn't. Or maybe I would do it two times and then that would sit there for like six months and then just get blown out. This is, this is, I called it pathological earlier. I would say it's almost like a neurosis, another cookie neurosis that we have now uncovered. I cannot relate to this at all. I like leftovers. I mean, there are limits, but I like leftovers. I actually took pride in the fact that I did not waste any of the food that I ordered. I did not go and get brand new meals when I had perfectly good food sitting in a refrigerator. So I ate that food because as like every dad in the world says, there are children starving in Africa. So being wasteful like that, I just, I I can't do it. I know. I know. Judgy Joyce used to say the same thing to me. I mean, I'm not kidding. No wonder she's so judgy. I'm realizing why she's so judgy. (laughs) You're her daughter. Yeah, I'm I'm a, I don't know if you know this about me, Guy, but I'm a little bit on the stubborn side. (laughs) I do know that. And that's, I think that's the thing that's annoying me about this, because I think this is less about you being truly viscerally grossed out and more about you just being stubborn and wanting to have this your way. I don't, I, I, I don't know what to tell you, but I mean, you could even ask Max. <laughs> that or sounds whoever, like an admission. Like, I, he's probably, he's never really probably seen me heat up food to bring in, you know, when we were like, you know, doing the show. Well, obviously just, not. I, I, obviously not because yeah. you don't do it. You don't even do it on Thanksgiving, like some sort of mm-hmm. communist, which brings us back. Maybe, you know what? In Soviet Russia, I bet you they don't have leftovers. And this goes back to the Soviet spy days. Maybe this is the true origin. It all comes together. There's got to be a carousel angle to this as well. I'm going to think on that over the weekend and try to diagnose you perhaps. Although sometimes you are undiagnosable on these things, Christine. Uh, I'm going to be having leftovers for dinner, I'm sure, tomorrow, if I had to guess. Going over to the little restaurant in our neighborhood tonight, bring back some leftovers. That'll be lunch. It'll be delightful. All right, well, we needed a talk about something completely ridiculous after the week that we've had here. These news cycles have been difficult. It has been a privilege covering this news with you, and I hope you found the program to be worthwhile, entertaining, interesting, etc., and we strive to do our best every single day. Back here on Monday, have a good weekend. It's The Guy Benson Show. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.